Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. I want to focus our attention on these verses in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, page 478 in the church Bibles, if, if you um, are unfamiliar with where that book is. They're, they're well-known verses probably to many of us, and they're well-known to me. And of course, anytime we come to something that is familiar to us in God's Word, we, I think we need a special measure of God's grace to prevent us from immediately saying, oh yes, I know that, because of course the proof of us knowing will be in our living these verses out. And secondly, I told myself this week, uh, why is it that you think, I asked myself, why is it that you think so much and speak often about death, and personally, and I, I began to wonder about this, and I started to do some um, self-examination which is always dangerous for me. But one of the conclusions I came to was that the reason that I speak and think so much about death is because the Bible and Jesus speaks often about death. And the Bible is a book that I'm with every day. And so every book in the New Testament mentions or gives instructions about living in light of the certainty of dying. Many of Jesus' parables were often tied to death. The ground of a certain man produced a good crop. He said, I'll sit back and take life easy. And then Jesus says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And not only Jesus' parables, but his teachings were also tied to death. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and then lose their soul? And of course, the ministry of Jesus is, if you pay careful attention to the Bible and stick with it, Jesus was always on about the fact that he had come to die, that he had come to die. So now we know why, kind of, if we feed on this book, then, then the book will live in us, and this is one of the ways that it does. So to the Bible... And then to God in prayer. And and our prayer this morning, I think it'd be wise if we, since this is officially the last weekend of summer 2013, I always think it's good that we spend some time thanking God for all the good things of this summer and then asking God for help next Saturday. It's such an important day in the life of the church and probably in the life of a lot of people that are going to be here. So after we read from Ecclesiastes, we'll, we'll do that. I just wanted you to be aware of it. Chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him. Before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. 
He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and pray. Our gracious God, we give glory to your name, and we would like to begin this prayer thanking you for this past summer. All your bountiful blessings, God, the common things of good meals, a bed to sleep in, nice homes to live in. Thank you for longer days in the summer where we had the opportunity given to us to do more with those we love Uh, late into the evening we could take long walks at 9 or 9 30 and still have light some of us God had the opportunity to take trips and we want to thank you for that and a lot of us had time to see family and friends we want to give glory to you for that these are good gifts we we don't think that we deserve them We're mindful, God, that so many years they're given to us for reasons that we wouldn't explain except your goodness and your kindness and your grace. So, Father, as we end this summer, we want to say thank you for everything. And then, God, we look to next weekend. I look to my weakness, God, and my great need of your help and speaking to a great number of people, we hope. So, Lord, we pray that you'd bless the congregation in the course of the week, help our prayers to be uh, Christ-centered, especially in light of Saturday, and then bring victory to your kingdom Saturday. We really aren't the preoccupation here. You are the expansion of your kingdom to see people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is our great hope. This is why we work and pray and, and give to this end. As we say this often, we mean it. We can work as hard as we want, but, Father, if you don't bless then our hard work is but in vain and so we pray that you would bless greatly this community stands in great need of visible representation of jesus christ gospel needs to be heard clearly it needs to be explained and there are so many different versions unfortunately in the times that we live in so god give us that grace bring victory to your kingdom glory to your name awaken the dead Awaken the dead, we pray, and help us to serve with a happy heart. Now, God, we ask that you would make this book live in us. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. Make this book live in us. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. Now, it's no doubt that the life that we've come to live on this earth at this time, at times, can be very, very thrilling No doubt in our times we have become experts in having a good time. And of course, having a good time is a wonderful gift from God. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Screwtape Letters, wrote, God has filled his world full of pleasures. And of course he has. To that same end, the Apostle Paul wrote, God has richly provided for us everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6, 
So as we think about these things, a good meal, good friends and family, some, some good music, right? Some good games or some good hobbies. If, if you're married or if you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, your long walks, right? Great talks on those long walks. And if you're allowed to, slow kisses, right? Kisses were invented by God, right? Slow kisses. All good times, all, all wonderful. Children, absolutely terrific. Grandchildren, I'm told, are absolutely fantastic. Being married, I was told to say. <laughs> absolutely wonderful. God has filled this world with pleasures. However, as we've just read from the Word of God, on this earth and this body of flesh, each of us here this morning live in, the good times cannot continue forever. I think it was Merle Haggard. Merle Haggard sang the song, Are the Good Times Really Over? And he had the question, Is the best of the free life behind us now? Are the good times really over for good? Well, Mr. Haggard says the Bible, On this earth, in this body, they will be eventually for everyone. Therefore, life is brief. And because life is brief, because the finish of our life, of our aging life, will be marked by days of trouble, chapter 12, verse 1. It's an interesting word there that, that the writer uses. Ra is trouble, days of evil, misery, injury, and distress. Chapter 12, verse 1. Before the days of trouble come, what should we do? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember. Another interesting word. Take it into account. Don't lose sight of God. The writer's saying, I'm speaking from the other side of youth. So young person, every person, listen to me. Remember God. Remember with a faithful remembrance and a dependent remembrance. And remember with a remembrance that is marked by growing reverence obedience, and love. Because the remedy to the brevity of life is not, okay, is not, I'm going to live as if every day is my last day. That is only half of what we need to know. And so half a truth is a lie. It's no truth at all. And to live our life as if every moment was our last, could be just a clever way of living for ourselves. The remedy of which we'll come to, but we, by way of necessity, we immediately have to get to to restrain us from a mere worldly answer. And much of the time giving in songs. The remedy to the brevity of life and the certainty of death and the reality of a judgment, verses 13 and 14. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, This is everyone's duty because God's going to bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Colossians 3 would say it like this. Whatever you do, it must pay homage to God. It must be for the glory of God so that everyone's eyes will be directed to God, period. Now, what an incredibly different perspective that is for much of the world. Live in such a way to remember God and to draw all eyes on God. Every choice, every thought, every decision, God, God, God. Now, I think we know this. While death strikes humanity at every age, 
The fact is that humans, most humans, will, will be allowed to grow old. Most of us will be allowed to wear down, to deal with weaknesses and frailty and, and having to deal with the inability to do what we could do in our younger day. And that's part of God's plan. That's part of God's wise, providential plan. So the good times, there's, there's going to come a time when the good times will not seem like the good times in a certain time of our lives. And we're going to have to deal with this. C.S. Lewis, trying to come to grips with this, wrote in a letter to a friend. This is very clever. I don't get any more tired now as I used to when I was younger. It just takes me more time to get untired. It's a, le- it's a clever little detour that modern medicine gives us, the, the availability and with careful advertising, and they're so good at it, attempting to create the desirability to look and feel young. And, and of course, there is some good there, perhaps some good, but the Bible is honest because of our frailty, the dreams of forever youth will end. And the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, are a very realist book calls us to think on this, not to ignore it, not try to run from it, but to think on this with the reality of a sovereign God at the forefront of our minds. Now let's talk about the man who wrote this, more than likely wrote this, this, this book. His name is Solomon. I mean, the vast majority of scholars say he probably wrote the book. King Solomon, the, the son of King David and, and King David's wife Bathsheba. Now, there was nothing very honorable in how David and Bathsheba met and then became man and wife. It was more lust than love that started the whole thing off. But for better or worse, they married. And Solomon was born. He grows up. Through a series of events, David declares him to be king. And David sends him up wonderfully, you would think, for success. This is the thing that, you know, most parents or many parents work for. He prayed for him. He set aside massive amounts of wealth for him. He gave him plans for the temple that he was to build under his reign. And he presented Solomon uh, before the people with, with much pomp and circumstance. Here he is. Here is the king. It's a good start. And he started off pretty good. But as life unfolds, his age begins to come. It becomes very bad. So we're just going to walk through this now. Stage one, the cult of self-expression. You have a worship folder, you can look at the back, that's our first point. That phrase, the cult of self-expression, was first coined by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1947, but nothing's changed, he's absolutely right. What is the cult of self-expression? Well, it's kind of the way Solomon lived. A person has his own mind, his own ways about everything, everything, and the person must be heard, so whether in the speaking or in the living, he will be heard, and this person says, no one has a right to stop me. And what the Bible would call sin, he would call repression. He would call tyranny. So the sum of his desires will be left unattacked and uncondemned. He could never see himself going astray. No, it's, isn't it funny how no prophet really ever came to Solomon and said to Solomon, thus saith the Lord, this far you will go and no more. And of course, this is a really very modern problem in all the world and sometimes in Christendom. Where right is called wrong and wrong is called right. And how dare, you know, a punk like you, pastor, tell me anything from God's word about anything. Solomon's life was and our age is marked increasingly by negative reaction to any restraining truth in anything. So God's moral law, you know, that's, that's for another age. It's tyranny. So I think 
you have this kind of perfect storm, at least in our age, where you have people willing to give their take on everything, couple that with the ability to give their take on everything, couple that with a level of biblical understanding that might make the dark ages blush. And so now Solomon in his older years, he's looking back, he begins to write out his experience in kind of a, look what a mess of a life I created style. He's writing in such a way that he very much feels his mortality now. He feels his mistakes. He feels his emptiness. It's palpable, which I think is a grace. Much of the time, people, people can't deal with the fact that my problems, Joe's problems, is because of Joe and not because of everybody else. And so he's saying, please listen. Only one thing sets everything right. Now listen carefully. Remember your creator. Fear your creator. Do your duty. In his younger days, Solomon, everything came through his eyes. Again, nothing's changed. Things he saw, he liked and did. Solomon's sin is just like the first sin, right? Eve with her eyes. Genesis 6-3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some and she ate it when she was told not to. Eve, Eve, remember your creator, Adam. Remember your creator. No, no, the cult of self-expression, right? This is it in real time. Hashtag, I just took a bite of an apple. Loving it. Posting, just kicking back, having some fruit, feeling empowered. Twitter, trusting my feelings, eating what I want. Don't stop believing. In real time. But that's just her first post. And again, nothing has changed, which is why Christians might have to take, we have to take the unchanging message gospel to our, our, not just their, our unchanging problem, sin. So, so Solomon at the onset, the world by his tail, he devoted himself to study, right, to pleasure, then projects, hard work. He devoted himself to securing large amounts of, of wealth. Then he devoted himself to parties, then to women, and then greatness, and he just plunged himself into many of these things. And each time, one was seen just for a time as the answer to his soul's thirst. This is what I'm going to build stuff. And when I build stuff, I'm going to feel good. And it feels good for just a moment. And then it passes. And no, no, now it's party. I mean, I've been working too hard. And the bow that's always bent will break. So I'm going to party now. And that's how I'm going to do it. And oh, no, that's such an empty way of life. And then he jumps from one thing to the next because the satisfaction can't satisfy. Solomon, what are you doing? Well, you're forgetting your creator in the days of your youth. Here's the sad part. He made it. He was number one. He became, Ecclesiastes 2.9, greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before him. Dad, does that kind of bother you? It kind of bothered me that his son had, I mean, he had to say that. Kind of bothered me a little bit. I'm number one. I made it. Ecclesiastes 2.10 Denied his eyes nothing they desired. I refused my heart no pleasures. The Puritans would say, if you really want to know about a man or a woman, ask them about their daydreams. So we have to understand while most of us will never do things at such a grand scale, a Solomon, we understand that. However, we can certainly do things on a smaller scale in our own little cult of self-expression in our own little corner of the world. Therefore, we have to be warned, and the Bible warns us. I was, I was thinking about Solomon a lot, and I was thinking while all that was going on in his life, he still had to attend public worship. 
I mean, he still had to do his kingly duties. He still did Passover. He still did the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement, and the Sabbath worship. Every Sabbath, he'd have to hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. He had to hear that, if you would, Sunday by Sunday. Stage one, the cult of self-expression. Stage two, the inevitability of depression. This is where that expression leads. It's, it's a certain outcome. This is a certain outcome of a life that's tilted towards the self. Solomon leaving God out, or better yet, maybe just moving God aside. The result, 37 times, and the whole book, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Vapor, everything's a vapor, everything's a mist. Empty, empty, empty is what he says. I think I, I know I've quoted this one time before. I'm going to quote it again. This is, comes from a man named Walter Lippmann in his book, um, Preface to Morals. And he describes postmodern man. He's describing our age. And this is what he says. Modern man may be very busy with many things, but he discovers one day that he's no longer sure that they are worth doing. He's been much preoccupied, but he's no longer sure he knows why. He becomes involved in an elaborate routine of pleasures and they do not seem to amuse him very much. He finds it hard to believe that doing any one thing is better than any other thing or in fact that it's better than doing nothing at all. It occurs to him that it's a great deal of trouble to live and that even the best of lives, the thrills are few and far between. He begins more or less to consciously seek satisfaction because he's no longer satisfied. And all the while he realizes that the pursuit of happiness was always a most unhappy quest. Later on, he not only loses his appetite, but he becomes excessively miserable trying to recover it. And of course, the danger here for Solomon is that it took years to come to this realization so, so again, in his heyday, it was absolutely incredible. But the pain of a long life, a long life that did not remember his creator in the days of his youth, finally, finally caught up to him. And so Solomon's our teacher, a man given the grace to see his mistakes and to write those mistakes down. Now listen carefully. If, if humanity was perfect, as God made them to be, every one of our impulses and every one of our instincts would be working in the right direction. So, so every interest of ours would always be the highest interest for God and our fellow man. And there would be so much brightness. And we would recall in our highest moments, there'd be brightness and we would live in service and obedience to God. And, and it would be just like heaven, doing everything all the time, the right way for the right reasons. You know, instead of every day being like a Friday, every day would be like a Sunday. So there'd be no sadness of heart, but it's sin and sin that has introduced all these kind of complications in life. And now, because of sin, darkness. Gloomy, cloud, darkness. Meaningless, meaningless. And so you'd have to ask the question, why, Solomon? Why meaninglessness? We could say it in a New Testament way, because Jesus Christ has been pushed aside. Jesus Christ has been pushed aside and our identity has been wrapped up in things that are passing away. Another quote from a man, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor. He lived in the 20th century, died in 1983. Listen to what he says. Man has become unhealthy 
A disease called sin has ravaged his being. And by fighting God, by resisting and disobeying him, he's robbing himself of the very prize that he covets. And whatever he may do, until a relationship with God is restored, he will never know happiness and health. He may multiply his wealth and his possessions. He may perfect his educational facilities, faculties. He may gain the whole world of wealth and knowledge, but to do so will profit him nothing so long as his relationship to God is not right. There will always be something lacking, even in his greatest joys. He will never know true satisfaction. He will find fault with his circumstance and change them, but the relief will only be temporary. He will blame other people and form new associations and alliances. I mean, this is so real, isn't it? But soon he will be unhappy again. He will censor this or that and resort to this advantage and and the other until, like Hamlet, finding all insufficient, he will cry out in bitterness saying, the time is out of joint. Oh, cursed spite that I ever was born to set it right. If you don't understand what Hamlet said, listen to what Randy Travis said in a song. In your search for fortune and fame, what goes up must come down. The Bible's cure is the cross. It's the only cure. The inevitability of depression is there. Jesus said it like this, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will save it. Stage one, the cult of self-expression. Stage two, the inevitability of depression. Stage three, the, the reality of depreciation and separation. I think your worship folders only has separation. That's okay. The reality of depreciation and separation. So the writer has to be honest, and he goes on, beginning around verse three, and he just tells us the inevitable conclusion of an aged life. Verse three, the keepers of the house tremble. The arms are shaky. They're not strong as they used to be, and you can't hold the hymnal anymore because your hands are shaky. The grip is going. Verse 3b, the strong man stoops. It's just reality. The legs are no longer straight. They begin to arc and the back is no longer upright and begins to bend and the grinders cease because they're few. So this person finds himself saying, you know what, I'll just have soup tonight. And no, no, thank you. Pudding will be just fine. The windows, the eyes have grown dim. They're fading. Verse 4, the doors to the streets are closed. A picture of of deafness and loud noises. The sound of grinding grow faint. So this is a picture of a man with insomnia. Men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. So you have a picture of a person who can get up early at the sound of birds, but he can't even hear the phone ring. I mean, explain that. But that's what happens. Verse 5, he's afraid of heights. He doesn't like to be crowded in the street. So, So essentially he gets anywhere four hours early, And he leaves two hours early because he wants to, quote, beat the rush. And the almond tree has blossomed. So his hair has turned white if he he has any left at all. And the grasshopper drags himself along. So we have a difficult picture of reality. I mean, this is reality. And then verse 5, maybe the worst of all, desire is no longer stirred. Or in the Hebrew, the caper berry is no longer working. That's the actual word there in the Hebrew. It's caperberry. It's known also as Flinders Rose. In the ancient world, people would eat these, and it was to said, to quote, excite all the senses. 
It's the modesty of the Bible. But even that powerful medicinal agent, even with all its potency, there'll come a day when it will not be potent anymore. Desire will be gone. Old friends, old friends, sat on their park bench like bookends. How terribly difficult it is to be aging. Saturday night, excuse me, Friday night, I went to Walmart with my wife. I sat on the bench where a lot of older gentlemen and gentle ladies sit, and I just sat there and watched the people, and I tried to put myself in an 80-year-old body watching people go by. How terribly difficult it is to be aging. But, but God, God is too kind to do anything cruel. And so we see a grace in this. We have to see a grace. I, th- I think there's at least two things. Number one, there's a warning here. What's the warning? Well, we must seize the opportunities provided for us in the very nature of our life, in the brief nature of our life. Remember your creator when, when you can. And remember your creator when you can and when you can do something about it. Number two, the grace of growing old. The, the good that the pain of aging can, can bring. Again, listen to C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. That's the book. If the first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well, the second shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad, in itself is our own and enough for us. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. As St. Augustine says, somewhere God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. Or as a friend of mine said, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. Now the God who has made us knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us to any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will never surrender to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible source of false happiness? It's true. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well. And so what we have in verse 5 there at the end, the finality of the picture, there there they go. There they go to their eternal rest, followed by verses 6 and 7. This is is really beautiful language. I just want to draw your attention to it. Uh, The silver cord, the golden bowl. What is that? A beautifully fashioned golden lamp. That's life, but it's held in suspension by a silver chain. And and all it takes is one length of that chain to go. And once that chain chain goes, it's gone. That's how fragile life is. We exist between, between a thin line of time and eternity. And in a moment, we cross over to the other side. One call, one report, one thing, and it's done. And again, that is not morbidity. That is reality. That is reality. And it's a call to reality. It's a call now to think biblically. Earlier in the book, Solomon said it like this. It's better to go to the house of mourning than a feast of fools. Because in a a feast of fools, it's everything superficial. It's transient. But in the house of mourning, it's very, very serious. 
in the house of mourning, people are going to have to think. I'm not going to live forever. I'm not going to live forever. And I know there's something on the other side. And I don't know how this judgment thing works. Uh, Somebody please help me. Our time is just about gone before we take communion this morning. Stage one, the cult of self-expression. Don't tell me how to live. Stage two, the inevitability of depression. Stage three, the reality of depreciation and separation. And finally, stage four, the certainty of judgment. That's verses 13 and 14. You see it there in your Bibles. I asked myself this week, Joe, what gets you out of bed every morning? And I wrote down the first thing that came to my mind. It wasn't very noble. Joe, what gets you out of bed every morning? Fear and fear. Fear that if I don't get up, we'll have nothing to eat. And the fear of the Lord. Because I have a charge to keep and a duty to do. And Jesus is alive. And Jesus is the ascended king. And I will stand before Jesus one day. It's not very noble. Not all of it. But it's the truth. Don't waste your life. I think Solomon would say, don't waste your life because it's not your life to waste. Fear God. Stand in awe of God. Keep his commands. Make him first in everything. Do your duty. Do your duty. Do it while you can. Seize the opportunities provided for you in the brief nature of your days. Young people, do your duty. Middle-aged people, do your duty. Older people, do your duty. All people in the times that we live in, we probably have more free time than at any point in all of human history. Do your duty. Men, would you buy flowers for your wife and then keep those flowers in the trunk of your car for four and a half weeks? Wait until those flowers fall apart and go limp and then give them to her and say, Honey, I've been thinking about you. She'd say, yeah, but not very much. If you're waiting, why are you waiting? If you parcel out life in bits and pieces to God, why are you doing that? Now listen carefully. This is not a call to world missions. It might be for some, but not for all. This is, I think, what it means. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a worker, you're a student, you're an athlete, you're a retiree, Seize the opportunities provided for you in the moments that you have because life is brief. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, but frankly, remember your creator every day of your life. Why? Well, because one, life is brief. Two, death is certain. Three, judgment is real. And so you say, well, gosh, that's sometimes confusing and I am with you. There are many days, in all honesty, I don't know how to live life in this culture sometimes and so sometimes I just have to get down on my knees and say Lord Jesus Christ teach me how to live I love you I want to serve you but teach me how to live because I don't always know what it means to live life in this world so please help me so the judgment came to Solomon at the end yeah it came But this is just as worse, I think. The judgment came to Solomon as his life was wasted on himself. 
It's far different than the other man, Jesus Christ, isn't it? Jesus Christ came to set his whole life aside. He came to take his whole life, set it aside, and so our sin could be taken aside. Jesus Christ came that you would have life and have it to the full. Not not a fantasy life. Don't buy that stuff. A life with no problems because that is fairyland life. That is not real life. Not on this earth. But Jesus came to give us life and life is to the fullest that's all wrapped up in him. That's full life. And Jesus Christ will return. And all of us will give an account of our time that we've been given. And that's the bar of God's judgment. And that worries me personally. Does it worry you? And Jesus Christ calls you to himself right now. And it's, he calls you to duty. Calls you to be in awe of God. Two last words. One from Morgan Freeman. Sorry. And then one from First Peter. Morgan Freeman, Shawshank Redemption. It's the scene near the end of the movie where he is before the parole board. He's served 40 years of a life sentence and his name is Red, right? And so Red is there and he's having this conversation with one of the parole chairs. And this is how it unfolds. The parole officer says, do you feel you've been rehabilitated? And Red says, rehabilitated? Well, now let me see. I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word so a young fellow like yourself can wear a suit and tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry? And the parole officer says, well, are you? Then he says this, not a day goes by, I don't feel regret. I look back on the way I was then, a young, stupid kid who committed that, that terrible crime. I want to talk with him. I want to talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are, but I can't. That kid's long gone. This old man is all that's left. And I got to live with that. And then from the word of God, one Peter, all men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Thank you for your attention. If you would bow with me now. The elders of our congregation would come forward as we prepare for communion. Just a brief prayer. Our gracious God, we pray for the grace to remember our creator in the days of our youth, to remember our creator now in the days that you have given. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.